Knock, knock. Hi, I'm the new med student. Welcome to rural medicine. What do you want to do while you're here? Deliver a baby, fix a broken leg, admit a patient with sepsis to a central line, mental health counseling. Hey, oh, what do you want to do? You know how to do all those things? Yeah. The nearest tertiary care hospital is 200 miles away. Well, what if something comes up that you don't know how to do? We're in the middle of nowhere, but we still have internet. Hey, Doc, little Eli's in room three. He's got an ear infection. All right, give him a sticker. I'll be right there. Hey, Doc, Jimmy from down the road. He's in room seven. He's feeling a little bit dizzy. Yeah, check his blood sugar. Tell him I'll be in there in a bit. Excuse me, Doctor, Sally's on the phone. She wants to know when you're going to deliver the mail. Um, couple hours. You also deliver the mail? Yeah, who else is going to do it? All right, why don't you go see that kid? I have a mayoral re-election debate to prepare for. You're the mayor? <laughs> for now. I'm running up against a goat who's got some pretty impressive ideas. One in six Canadians, or about seven million people, live in rural communities. With physician shortages in rural areas, many people are turned away with nowhere to go. Although healthcare in these communities is funded and governed by provincial jurisdictions, rural communities are often disproportionately underserved. These disparities can bring challenges that interplay with and impact social determinants of care and overall well-being. Importantly, many Indigenous communities live in rural areas, which further exacerbates their challenges to accessing quality health care. Our team explored these issues further, and we were joined by Dr. Catherine Churvin and Dr. Ogisto Horn, two family physicians who gave us insight into their experiences living, practicing, and teaching in rural settings, and how their work has impacted their communities. Throughout this episode, you will hear my own reflections as a medical student at McGill University on what it's like to train in a rural setting. I'm Richie, and this is episode 119 of Raw Talk Podcast. In Canada, there is an urban-rural split in the healthcare system, and we were curious to learn about the many hats worn by the rural family physician. We spoke with Dr. Chervin and Dr. Horn on some of the complexities that arise from providing care to rural populations. My name is Catherine Chervin. I'm a retired family physician and the former vice dean academic at Northern Ontario School of Medicine or Nossim University. And I'm also professor emerita at Nossim University. One of the major differences about rural healthcare is that in a small rural community, there are fewer healthcare resources. And that means that healthcare providers there must work at the top of their scope of practice. So as an example, in, in a rural community, a family physician would do many of the procedures the type of care that in an urban setting might be done by another Royal College specialist. So typically in a rural community, family physicians work in the office, of course. They work in the emergency department. They care for hospitalized patients. They deliver babies. And they are it for whatever happens in that rural community with respect to the healthcare needs of the population. Many family physicians also, when they work in rural communities, have extra training. So in addition to their comprehensive practice, they may do more specialized procedures such as endoscopy or stress tests, or they will administer anesthesia they will do basic surgical procedures, tubal ligations, hernia repairs, tendon repairs. And that also applies to other healthcare providers. So nurses, nurse practitioners, OTs, PTs may have to do a higher level of care than their counterparts in an urban setting. My name is Ojisto Ganawaherde Horn, and I am uh, Haudenosaunee or Iroquois, Kanyakehaga or Mohawk from uh, the communities of Gahnawage, where my mother is from, uh, Bear Clan, and Akwazasne, where my father is from, and he's Wolf Clan. 
Uh, my mom's name is Gahandi Neto. My father's name is Tom Cook. And I am a family doctor. I previously worked in Gahanawage for seven years, and I've now just started my eighth year here in Akwazasne. When I was working in, in Gahanawage, I worked in the um, nearby community hospital, did obstetrics and uh, hospitalist work, and then another nearby hospital worked in the emergency room and in the community had my own long-term care patients and, of course, my outpatients. And when I left there seven years ago, I came here to Akwazasne, and there was not a lot of primary health care here, and so I became a doctor almost exclusively in the community. I work with a nurse practitioner and um, some other doctors who are here once a week. And so we are able to provide health care, but it's quite busy and we keep having to be very resilient, like during COVID, we have to be responsive, particularly because of the healthcare crisis and the lack of services that are increasingly or less easily available. And so we've had to keep adjusting. And so life in a rural area, we really are like, we just have to be very flexible. Unfortunately, the funding agencies like RAMQ and OHIP, because I practice with an Ontario and Quebec health um, license to practice medicine, they're not very responsive to the complexities of providing care here. And so that makes it really hard as a doctor. But that being said, it is very fulfilling and I do a lot of different kinds of medicine. When COVID happened and we were no longer able to see people in clinic, I um, started doing a lot of home visits. And was able to see firsthand how people were living and whether or not they could meet what I was asking them to do, like lead healthier lives with more activity, eating better, as well as um, being more physically active. And so when I go to people's homes, I can actually see, you know, that sometimes it's harder to meet those objectives, those recommendations. Those are all the social determinants of health that we learn about, and it's important to do home care. So I do home care, long-term care. I, of course, have a clinic. I um, try as much as I can to work with the other um, people on the team, the diabetes nurses, the home care nurses, the long-term care staff. And of course, I go to the local off-reserve hospital, and I do rounds on patients who are from Akwazasne and make sure that they know that I will follow them when they come back home so that there is a more seamless discharge and so we can try and help people once they've left so that they don't go back to the hospital and that they know that they're being cared for. So I'm being responsive to what's needed. It's really hard as a family doctor to provide acute care, preventive care, and chronic disease management when you are so short-staffed, but we do our best. Healthcare is an inseparable component of the environment and history of a given community, often requiring an understanding of the social and political context that impacts specific populations when guiding care. We continued our discussion by asking about issues that are more prevalent in these communities and how these impact downstream care. That's that's quite a, a complex question. But in general, across Canada, my experience has been primarily in uh, the Maritimes and in Northern Ontario. The uh, health statistics show that often rural populations, the, the people have poorer health care in terms of higher rates of chronic disease. There's often more poverty higher rates of cancer, maybe of injuries, depending on the industries that are there in rural communities. You know, mining and forestry have higher rates of injuries often. Of course, a large percentage of the Indigenous population in Canada lives in rural and remote areas. And in remote areas, of course, Indigenous communities, there's poor housing, so there's a higher rates of infectious disease, of tuberculosis, diseases that you may see in overcrowded conditions because there's inadequate housing. If the drinking water is not safe, there may be conditions related to uh, unhealthy drinking water, In one of the uh, Northern Ontario 
First Nations, there was an outbreak of blastomycosis, which is a fungal disease that is transmitted often by uh, through the soil. And it was it was quite a serious outbreak. I'm pretty sure, and I can check this, that it was uh, Constance Lake where that outbreak was. So that was uh, serious to the extent that many, I think, dozens of people were affected and a number, several people died from it. So rural communities are more vulnerable in many ways. Of course, I always like to look at the positive side as well. And the advantages of rural communities are access to recreation. There are often really strong connections in the community and support from the community. And that would apply to the healthcare providers who function as a very cohesive team, who support each other through very difficult situations. As one example, the group of family physicians would get together to uh, support a premature newborn. So the community of Akwazasne is a very old community. It's from the colonial era. We're at the northern edge of our territory, which is for Mohawks, it's uh, the Adirondacks. And we moved north along the St. Lawrence River. We're one of seven communities, Mohawk communities today. We have a very long political history with the French, the Dutch, the English, the Americans, the Canadians. And so um, we are jurisdictionally very interesting in that the Canadian-American international border goes right through our community and the Ontario and uh, Quebec border goes right through our community as well. So it's an interesting place to work and live and we have a lot of uh, historical and current stressors but we also have a very strong culture and strong sense of resilience. So there's a few things that are quite unique about the population. So the first thing I would say is that like all Indigenous communities, we did go through a lot of really difficult times in terms of poverty and the change in our ability to take care of ourselves, to be able to be part of an economy. And so uh, we used to be agriculturalists and we used to grow a lot of our own things and whatever extra we would sell for implements. So we were very much part of the surrounding economies. And in the 50s, there were six industries that were sort of wrapped around the western part of the community. And as a result of those industries, we now have a lot of pollution of our lands, waters, and so we no longer are able to work with the land like we used to. We lost our agriculture, our animals that made you know milk and meat, honeybees. Um, we were quite self-sufficient and that changed in the 80s when we realized we were through studies that the land was, was quite polluted. And there has been a lot of rejuvenation but there's a lot of forever chemicals that are in the water and in the land and these persistent chemicals are PFOS, which is something people are talking about, as well as um, PCBs. We also have dioxins and fluorine and other things. And so as a result of those persistent chemicals, despite you know um, being told not to eat fish, we had a lot of fish because it was accessible and we're fishermen as well. And so we have this bioaccumulation of many of these chemicals. So today we have anecdotally, because we don't have numbers, but we have a lot of people who've been suffering and suffer from and have died from their neoplastic autoimmune illnesses as well as systemic inflammatory conditions like diabetes. And that's compounded by our, like I said, inability to engage with the economy and poverty. We also used to have a lot of men who would leave the community and go and participate as iron workers and they would bring back relatively good paychecks. And so we did have a time when men left the community to go work. That's changed since the 80s because of change in laws. With the pollution, we really were unable to participate in the economy. So we've had to come up with creative ways to do that. And so as a result, we do have a population that's not so healthy because of easy access to cigarettes and 
we have the same problems like everywhere else with alcohol and, and drugs. And because we're a border town, we have a lot of social issues. So it's an interesting mix. And so it's reflective in the type of illnesses that the people have acute and chronic. We continued our conversation by asking our guests to address the disparities in healthcare access between rural and urban communities. As everyone in Canada, I'm sure at this point is well aware, there's a crisis everywhere in healthcare, and particularly with access to family doctors, and that is always worse in rural areas. So in, in Northern Ontario, we were short at least 100 family doctors, or it might even have been close to 200. And it's just gotten worse because after the pandemic, many family physicians retired or had to leave their practices for all, all sorts of reasons. There was you know, a huge amount of stress and burnout. And then the shortage of nurses is even more acute than it used to be. And of course, when a health team starts to crumble, it will happen more quickly in areas which are already fragile. A lot of students do their training in cities, and in the cities, it's relatively easy to access allied healthcare, like occupational therapy and physiotherapy and dietitians and you know all of the people who make up the healthcare system. When you live in a rural area, it's much harder to access those people. And so if you train exclusively in the city and aren't aware, you don't realize how supported you are as a training family doctor. And then you leave and you go and work in a, in a rural area, you find out that it's very hard to continue working the way that you learned and you have to reconfigure just about everything. So that's one of the things is lack of services. The other thing is um, in our particular case, because we're on the border and I have, you know, a third of my patients have OHIP and another two-thirds have QHIP, there are implications for where I see where they get acute care and subspecialist care at tertiary centers and where they get their diagnostic results and, and all of that. And so working in a place like here, you just have to be aware that it's not going to be simple. It's going to be complicated. And as a family doctor, we're the best ones to figure it out. And then we can try and make protocols, procedures to make it safe so that people don't fall through the cracks. And then we can uh, teach others how to work in a place like this. So it's very different, challenging. But if you are resilient, responsive, creative, then working in a place like here is challenging, but very rewarding because you know that you are doing the best that you can with what little you have. And I know that the College of Family Physicians of Canada is working towards making more patient-centered care as part of the curriculum and afterwards. And I know that that's happening in, with the Ontario health teams. I mean, everybody's recognizing that the best way to practice family medicine is within a, an area. And so communication of Indigenous people to the specialists and other care people is the most important thing. So that means we have to get like cellular service and Wi-Fi and EMRs, electronic medical records. We need to do all of that stuff as well. So there's just so much when we talk about Indigenous health. <laughs> there's just so much to talk about and so much to look at. The great thing is that right now the colleges are listening and hopefully we'll start to have programming that is more relevant to the area. The challenges and disparities underlying rural medicine also provide opportunities for tailored training experiences, which can equip future physicians with the skills and cultural competence to provide focused and sensitive care. For health education, there are huge opportunities in rural areas because typically a medical student or, or a resident who is experiencing a placement in, in a rural community they may be the only one or there may be only a couple of other learners in that community. So they will be at the front lines and involved in a wide variety of experiences. And they will have more responsibility and more opportunity to get hands-on experience than typically in a large teaching hospital or even a large urban training center where there were often multiple learners. 
as we said at the outset of this podcast, where people in rural areas are sicker, sadly for the population, good for the experience of the medical students, they will see conditions that they would not see in urban centers. Also, because the healthcare team is small, I think medical students will be welcomed, they will be supported, they will be celebrated when they're in the community, and people will go out of, the way, out of their way to give them a good experience, to make them feel at home. So they will learn a lot, not just about medicine, but about rural life, about the community. Of course, there are also cultural experiences related to First Nations that are close by. For example, as well, in Northern Ontario, there's a large Francophone population. So there's a rich variety of experiences available to medical students in rural settings. At Nassim University, there are many residency opportunities for graduating medical students, and there are elective opportunities for medical students from elsewhere, so from other universities. And those can be in larger centers, medium-sized uh, centers. So the two academic health sciences centers are in Sudbury and Thunder Bay, and they are tertiary care. They have neurosurgery, cardiovascular surgery, all the advanced, uh, you know, high-level cancer care, et cetera. And then in the uh, medium-sized communities, you have uh, high-level secondary care. And then we have many, there, there are more than 70 communities where medical students or residents can train. And the residencies that are offered currently, there is a rural stream in family medicine. There is a remote First Nations residency stream, which is specifically tailored to the skills and cultural education that medical students would require to provide service to a First Nations community. You know, from a very small community or multiple small communities, Manitoulin Island being an example, to First Nations road access or remote fly-in First Nations, to larger centers such as Sudbury and Thunder Bay. I think that every trainee in the medical system has to understand that Indigenous people have a very complex relationship with Canada and that our rights are not guaranteed in the Canadian Constitution and the Charter of Health of uh, Rights and Freedoms. And because of that, there are inequities across the board. So we talk about equality and equity Equality is when everything, everybody gets the same thing, and equity is when you recognize what the differences are and try and fix the structural problems, and then there's justice. And so if we understand why things are the way they are, if we look at the truths, if we look at the history, then we can start to understand why there are persistent inequities in the social determinants of health, like education, like access to water, like housing, like food security, all these things, then we can start to have a little more empathy to our Indigenous patients. But because people in the health system don't know this, it's very hard to be empathic, and then they make judgments and actions that uh, could be very harmful, racist, hurtful, and can cause incredible morbidity and mortality. So I think every doctor has to be able to look at their own privilege and look at the history and see the structural reasons why Indigenous people are, are in the situation that they are in. And that we know our history and we know how to fix it. We just need the space and access to our own monies to be able to make things better. We are the richest people in Canada, but we don't have access to any of our money. It's all in the natural resources that Canada has been able to use to be able to make Canada a G7 country. The whole sort of continuum of cultural awareness and cultural competence and cultural sensitivity and then finally cultural humility, these are all ways of recognizing that we all come with a different, with different cultures and that recognizing um, that we have, we have biases that 
guide the way that we interact. And being able to recognize those before they're said, hopefully, but even after they're said, to recognize it and make sure that behavior is changed, that's, that's what it is. It's being able to recognize and be humble about our mistakes. Now, as doctors, we have a culture where we have a, a lot of knowledge and a lot of power and access, and sometimes we forget how disempowered, inaccessible, a lot of our patients have towards achieving health. And so I think cultural humility and cultural um, safety is just making sure that doctors learn and healthcare professionals learn about the importance of having self-reflection and humility. Four weeks ago, I completed my rural family medicine rotation in the Akwesasne Mohawk community working closely with Dr. Ogisto Horn, one of the only family physicians in the local communities on the Canadian side. This experience was incredibly impactful as it allowed me to become truly integrated into a community that was unlike my own and to play an influential role in contributing to the health and well-being of its people. Throughout my rotation, I learned about the history of the Mohawk people and their relationship with North American colonialism which in turn allowed me to appreciate how past practices, including the Indian Act, limitations of reserve land, and use of residential schools, unfairly disadvantaged Indigenous communities and has paved the path for change through truth and reconciliation. As a Torontonian, my in-person exposure to Indigenous communities has been nearly negligible. However, given that every patient and community member that I met here was Indigenous, I gained an appreciation for practicing with cultural safety, and being curious about the history of Indigenous peoples in Canada and how that history has shaped their social determinants of health today. As the weeks went on, I became more acclimated and comfortable in my role as a contributor to the team, including more about the community, how individuals here receive care, and which issues are most pertinent to patients. What really struck me about Dr. Horn's practice is how incredibly personal it is. I never appreciated that a physician would know most, if not all, of her patients and would be such a beacon in the community, advocating and helping patients find much-needed services, as well as being a strong role model. This became particularly clear to me during our home visits, which were incredibly intimate, allowing us to see how people lived at their most vulnerable points. I was warmed by the fact that many patients, particularly older adults, glowed when they saw Dr. Horn, knowing her to play a protective role in the community. This is a stark contrast to what I have seen in urban family practices, which I have found to be less formal, and encouraged me to really get to know my future patients and their backgrounds. The final week of my rotation was bittersweet, as I greatly enjoyed my time working with Dr. Horn. This rotation taught me to appreciate the versatility, challenges, and rewards associated with being a family physician. Contrary to what I've heard from classmates and other physicians, family medicine is indeed the toughest field of medicine. It requires constant, up-to-date knowledge, awareness of services to ensure adequate referrals, and demands advocacy for patient well-being across the lifespan, not to mention all the extra paperwork. Being a family physician allows one to truly integrate into communities, encompassing all aspects of the CanMeds framework. This was easily my favorite rotation and will strongly inform my future relationships with family physicians as a budding medical specialist. If there's any advice I can pass on to current and future medical students, it's to approach medical training with kindness and an open mind. Medicine is one of the few professions that involves connecting with others, who are often vulnerable individuals, for the sole purpose of advocacy and health promotion. This allows trainees to learn a lot about the experiences of those unlike themselves and to appreciate the impact of sociocultural background and many other factors on personal identity. Approaching encounters with openness and kindness facilitates a strong therapeutic alliance and predicts improved patient well-being, but it also enables a personal reflection on the part of the provider about health, illness, and the human experience. Next, Dr. Chervin and Dr. Horn share advice with early career healthcare professionals who are interested in rural family medicine. The stories are what touch people's hearts and motivate them to action, so I think getting to know individual patients, understanding the people at the heart of the rural healthcare crisis, and then telling those stories to the people who need to hear them, to leaders, to government at all levels, 
to physician and other healthcare organizations, College of Family Physicians of Canada, the provincial colleges, medical associations such as the OMA, Ontario Medical Association, and the Ontario College of Family Physicians. And every province has a similar organization. And I think uh, BC is a good example of where some recent advocacy has, uh, has the potential, we haven't seen the results yet, but has the potential to improve family medicine with the different approach to remuneration, which in turn will, one hopes, stabilize rural communities. And I think the the other part of advocacy that is really important is understanding the joys of rural life. I've been interested in rural communities my, my entire life, and it's been sad to me to see the hollowing out of many rural communities. I feel in some ways that the pandemic with the ability to work remotely can hold out uh, hope for younger people to start moving back into rural communities because a physician, nurse, a healthcare provider will have the opportunity for a job. But in this era, when people can work remotely, their spouse if they're not a healthcare provider, would also have opportunity to work there. You know, the, the more we learn about better ways to live as a human being, we know that being closer to nature is good for us. It's good for our emotion, emotional and I would also say spiritual well-being as, as well as our physical health. I'm hoping that to a certain extent, there will be a revitalization of of rural communities as we look at different ways of of living and working. So in 2017, we started having medical students and residents from McGill University and later on University of Ottawa, as well as Queen's Medical School to come here for one month and do a rural rotation. And uh, since uh, 2017, we've had something like 140, 150 trainees. I say trainees because that encompasses people at different levels in their education. And what's been really nice about it is that it took a lot of work, but it's a really good reflection of how culturally we would have seen education. We always had mentors and mentorees. We were always teaching. There was a lot of apprenticeship. And so I really enjoy having students here because I don't think I could work in this environment if I was not teaching. So it's a way of always checking yourself when you're always asked to teach, when you're always asked to explain things. And so it's really helped me be able to find the words to become a better physician. So I really, really enjoy having residents and medical students from the different universities come here and help me learn as well. Dr. Chervin and Dr. Horn also discuss their contributions to the curriculum and highlight the active role of the family physician in not only providing care and advocacy to their communities, but also in contributing to the advancement of medical education. What I'm, I'm hoping and imagining will happen is that over the last couple of decades, the uh, medical education has become more and more distributed and community-based and I imagine that that trend will continue. What that means is with the technology that we have now, with the ability to connect healthcare providers virtually, that will lead to uh, strengthened networks of providers. And, And BC is already doing this where a physician or another healthcare professional in a remote community who needs a consultation can access that consultant through an iPad, you know, in minutes. And then the consultant can see what the physician or the other healthcare provider in the setting is doing, what what the patient looks like and of course, there are also now peripherals where you can you can actually listen to the listen to the heart or look in the ear remotely. You can uh, there you can transmit EKGs. There are all sorts of ways that 
the tertiary care hospital can support the remote communities. And again, with the BC model, there's physical uh, reciprocity and that the consultant will go to the rural community and spend some time there with the uh, family physicians who are doing uh, more advanced uh, surgery and vice versa, the family physician will go to the tertiary care center to make sure that that connection, the skills and the understanding between the larger centers and the rural and remote centers is there. So that to me is an incredible opportunity. And there's also the simulation-based medical education is growing, you know, has made great strides in the past while and is continuing to grow So that simulation-based education provides the skills and resources that the team on the ground needs to be able to handle. Because one one of the most um, challenging aspects of rural healthcare are the the rare and very serious events that happen that people will not be seeing every day of their lives, obviously. So they need to, simulation allows them to practice the appropriate responses All of those are opportunities for the future. And I I would also like to add that, particularly for medical education, I would hope that more and more as uh, medical schools become more socially accountable, that the education is led and created in partnership with the communities that the medical school serves. So I would say that the Nassim University Remote First Nations Residency Program was uh, designed and built and driven by, by the community, by the First Nations Tribal Council and by the community itself. Dr. Horn also spoke specifically about how the family medicine curriculum is changing to better serve Indigenous communities. So the... College of Family Physicians of Canada has been quite responsive in trying to um, come up with ways of um, working towards the recommendations of the TRC. For many years, there's there's an Indigenous Health Committee. It became a committee recently, and I've been part of the committee for several years. A few years ago, we came out with the um, CanMeds Indigenous Health Supplement. CanMeds is a framework for which all of the family doctors who are in training and medical students in training are asked to not just be experts and be scholars, but also to become professionals and you know be able to collaborate and to communicate and to be advocates and to be managers of their workspaces. And so um, it's it's not just being good at um, reading a book and and you know writing exams. So these CanMeds are both the Royal College as well as the um, College of Family Physicians of Canada for family medicine. And so um, these CanMeds get revised and there's a revision coming up in 2025. And in response to the emerging needs or the emerging recognition of the inequities of Indigenous people and of course our poor health, we made an Indigenous health supplement to the CanMeds. Came out in December of 2020. It was a really hard process, but it was really important to do and we're still learning and it's a living document, meaning that we can keep adding to it as we get better and better of finding the words to explain our situation. A lot of effort went into that CanMeds Indigenous Health Supplement, and it's continuing, and it's um, providing a one of those accountability frameworks that both colleges, the Royal College and CFPC, strive to uh, meet for teaching their trainees. I think for medicine in general, healthcare in general, we need to go back to an old-fashioned value of service, which is, you know, as we as we develop as, uh, you know, throughout our education as healthcare practitioners, to be learning about and understanding what it is that a community needs and how how we can tailor our our education as a healthcare professional to communities needs and i would hope for the the communities that are the most underserved whether they're in urban and many are in rural communities so people who are not well off financially people who are living in difficult circumstances and certainly 
many of the indigenous people in Canada live in very difficult circumstances. We're seeing more and more unhoused homeless people in all our communities. So the first value would be service, would be being patient or client-centered, community adaptive and patient or client-centered. So training in a way that allows us to adapt our practice to what our community needs, wherever that community is. And that requires another value, I would say, is curiosity and, and humility. So curiosity, actually, it means if one approaches, I guess, in, in my experience, if one approaches life with a curious mindset, then everything is always interesting, because the person in front of you or the team that you're working with will be different. Human beings are endlessly complex and interesting. So approaching it with a, a humble and curious mind, you know, what gets us into trouble often as human beings is overconfidence or, or arrogance. I guess it goes hand in hand with curiosity, the willing willingness to always learn to be open-minded and open-hearted as we go through our, our education, our practice. And, uh, you know, I'm <laughs> retired now at, at the, at the other end of my career, but there's still lots that I'm curious about, interested in and in learning. I'm, uh, I'm now taking a planetary health course and certificate because I think, that is, you know, an area of health that we all have to really have at the forefront of our uh, of our minds over the over the next short while if we're going to have a planet to live on. What I like to say about working in a rural area is that everything, everything, not just the patients, but um, the infrastructure of where you're working and all of the relationships that you would have, it's, everything is undifferentiated when you show up. And so when you show up, depending on what your interests are, you create your own relationships, your own links to support structures, your own policies and procedures and ways of, of, of finding the patients. And so that was one of the best things about coming here. It's undifferentiated. I could imagine something, a system that was better, and then I could work towards it. When um, I previously worked in a system where everything has already been thought out, there wasn't a lot of room for creativity. And so I wasn't very creative. I just did my work and went home. So I do think that I'm more invested here working in an environment that demands creativity and demands relationship building and collaboration and teamwork. So that's what the best thing about rural medicine is, is that you have an opportunity to create something. And hopefully it, it's something that's going to help the health of the people. Dr. Horn emphasizes the importance of understanding how the difficult history of Indigenous people in Canada has impacted access to care. The Akwesasne Mohawk community sits in a unique geographical location, which is overseen by three jurisdictions across two countries, which significantly impacts where and how community members receive their care. We're here before Quebec was here and of course Ontario. Because of the way that history unfolded, we speak English, but our community is right at the corner of Quebec. And so, of course, there are a lot of French language laws, a lot of restrictions, and our patients have a very hard time going to Montreal and having care in another language or speaking to their receptionists and secretaries in French, they don't even know what they're asking. They don't know when the appointments are. They end up missing the appointments. Transportation is a huge issue. And when you get transported, you have to have somebody to go with you. After that, you I don't always, I, I actually mostly do not get any of the information from that tertiary site to our clinic. So all around having care for our patients with Quebec health is really difficult for many reasons I mentioned. In our community, unfortunately, we have the haves and the have-nots. And the haves are those people who have OHIP, who can get their services, their primary, uh, their secondary, their tertiary care in nearby areas. But if you have QHIP, it's much harder. And so it, there shouldn't be haves and have-nots just because they live on different sides of a border. 
it's uh, quite difficult because there are expectations. Um, we live, the other border that we have is the American border. And so they have a completely different system. And so they have a completely different system. And so, you know, some of our patients, because they can't get care on the Ontario or Quebec side, they'll go to the American side. And so there's a lot of comparing. They are all very different systems. It's not equal in our community when you have Ontario, Quebec, and New York State types of health care. We also asked Dr. Horn about non-insured health care, such as dentistry and prescription, and how that may involve those living in rural communities. So the non-insured health benefits is a program that was given through Treaty 6. It was the medicine chest that was signed in, during Treaty 6 in the, uh, in the prairies. And um, what that guaranteed was health care to status Indians. So a status there are status Indians, there are Inuit, there are Métis. So this is just for status Indians. So we here in Akwazasne, we are status Indians. So the non-insured health benefits is the program in which we are, our benefits include prescription medications, uh, medical devices, transportation, dentistry, optometry. These benefits are available to us. So we get, you know, glasses every you know, two years, we can be evaluated for our teeth and get cleanings, designated time, we can get certain things paid for. And that sounds all wonderful if you have access. And so this non-insured health benefits is, is difficult because it's very hard for many people to access those services. That's one of the biggest problems is the non-insured health benefits. It's a very, it's, it's a well-funded program for like the 70s, but it hasn't really changed. And so the funding has gotten more and more restrictive. And, you know, there are more and more medications coming out for, you know, a lot of chronic illnesses. And um, so a big part of budgets are taken up by some of these medications. It would be really wonderful to have more money put into preventive health. So non-insured health benefits are the benefits that we as status Indians are eligible for, and of course that varies in terms of accessibility across Canada. We are extremely grateful to our guests for sharing their academic and personal experiences about living and practicing medicine in rural communities, advocating for greater access to quality care, and helping to train the next generation of family physicians through mentorship and curricular development. Their insights highlight the richness and diversity of family medicine and emphasize that this field sits at the intersection of social, cultural, and biological factors, which cumulatively impact quality of life on the individual and broader population level. We also acknowledge that no discussion about rural populations and the social determinants which impact their health is complete without acknowledgement of the history of Indigenous people and their difficult relationship with European colonialism. We encourage our listeners to reflect on this history and to take this time to appreciate and advocate for initiatives that work toward addressing past injustices which continue to impact Indigenous people across Canada today. Among many others, these include the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission came out with 96 uh, recommendations. The way that uh, the infrastructure is set up, um, you have four parts. The first part is who are the rights that the country is supporting. And then based on that, you have certain laws, specific acts. And then the next one would be institutions that are responsible for carrying out the laws and the specific acts that support those rights. And then based on that, the institutions, they have their own roles, responsibilities. And then based on that, they have policies, procedures, and then programming. One of the problems with Indigenous health is that we keep putting all this money into programming, but we're not changing anything upstream. We're not fixing the policies, the procedures, the rules, the responsibilities. The institutions are not being held accountable. They're not changing because they're following the Indian Act, which is a racist document and does not support the rights of Indigenous people. So if we go from the top and we talk about the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, and then we go a step after and we talk about the Indian Act. They're two opposite things. So the Truth and Reconciliation's recommendations were designed to help institutions learn this and recognize and be held accountable to these inequities. Accountability is a huge thing. And accountability, it doesn't have teeth if it doesn't have a way of being measured and for people to have to or institutions to have to 
be held accountable. So this was a way to hold institutions accountable. As a result, we have all of these different recommendations, attempts to be carried out in institutions like child welfare, health, um, law, education. And so these are really important and it's a framework so that the um, institutions that are responsible for the health, welfare, and legal lives of Indigenous people are carried through. So the TRC is a, a document with teeth in it with which they were able to make recommendations to institutions to be held accountable to the past and to the policies and programs that they were doing to make sure that Indigenous people would have an equitable seat at life. We would like to conclude this episode by expressing our recognition of and gratitude toward Indigenous communities across Canada who have held the land we have had the privilege of living, studying, and practicing upon since time immemorial. As researchers, medical students, and future physicians from all walks of life, we are forever grateful to those who had been on these lands before us and through their stewardship and connection to the land have made it what it is now. We want to acknowledge that the land we are on is the unceded and sovereign territory of the Akwesasne Mohawk and their ancestors. We also acknowledge the Algonquin, Haudenosaunee, Huron-Wendat, and Abenaki, who are neighbors and partners to the Akwesasne Mohawk. We also acknowledge the contributions of other Indigenous groups, as well as the Métis and Inuit, for their work in shaping and building this country into what it is now. While we recognize the past injustices and right the wrongs, we will walk together on the path of healing and reconciliation. A very special thanks to Dr. Chervin and Dr. Horn for their insights on this episode, and to you for listening. This episode was hosted by me, Richie, with interviews conducted by myself, Sonica, and Kayvon. Priska, Junaid, Rachel, Maddie, and Teodora helped with content creation, Atifa helped with promotions, and Noor was the executive producer. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave us five stars. Until next time.